1: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
2: China and the United States are increasingly at odds over a variety of issues. And, you know, we've been talking for more than a year now about uh, about decoupling. And I think, honestly, the sad the sad truth is that it's actually happening. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray from the business desk here at the South China Morning Post. And that was John Artman, one of our tech desk editors, talking earlier this week on the Inside China Podcast. He was talking about the story that's dominating finance news in the United States, the forced removal of Didi's app from China's app stores. It came just days after Didi raised 4.4 billion US dollars in an IPO on Wall Street. You're going to hear how this is affecting a bunch of companies from China hoping to raise money in the US markets. But before we talk about that, we're going to Afghanistan. US troops are leaving after 20 years on the ground in Afghanistan. But overnight, something you may have missed we had news that the Taliban is welcoming investment from China. Are we going to see a new branch of the Belt and Road open up? There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Josh and welcome back. We've got a lot of things we want to cover this week, and uh, you know, in particular, I want to talk about what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, we, we've seen, uh, you know, first the U.S. withdrawing troops, closing down uh, an airbase that has been there for you know since, frankly, 2001. And just overnight, we had the Taliban say that they want to have a relationship with China, uh, official relations. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's happening with that.
1: Uh, thank you, Chad. That's uh, very interesting because the Taliban, for the first time, they're saying on the record that, you know, they uh, welcome China as, uh, uh, as an investor. And it's also making it kind of very clear that uh, they will not, uh, you know, work with uh, Eastern Turkmenistan uh, Islamic movement, which is uh, – Regarded by Beijing as a terrorist organization, so the Taliban is uh, seems that it uh, now is winning the war and is also preparing for lay some uh, groundwork for its uh, basic diplomacy. So it's very, very interesting. Remember when uh, before the September eleventh attack. The Taliban almost, uh, you know, very, very close uh, to take over the whole Afghanistan. Only small parts in the northern are controlled by the northern islands, uh, you know, by General Massoud and these, uh, these, uh, these usual warlords. One big mistake made by the previous Taliban regime is that it has a, it, it, of course, it has, uh, you know, in the same bed with uh, uh, Osama bin Laden and getting involved in this uh, terrorist attack September 11th. So, you know, George W. Bush will certainly not Tories and uh, have a a war immediately. And then for China, you know, Taliban is working with the Eastern Turkmenistan Islamic movement. It's also the enemy, the son enemy for Beijing. So Beijing will never give them any support. So it's kind of international isolation. And then, uh, you know, Taliban regime basically have only two or three other foreign countries recognized in its previous uh, administration. And also at home, it implemented a very, very brutal uh, kind of rule of the, of the country, you know, something that, that is, even, even they can find some extremism from the Koran, from the uh, uh, classic text, it's no longer accepted by the, by the international community. For instance, it's treatment of the women. And these kind of things are uh, certainly no longer uh, tolerated by the modern society. Now, 20 years later, the Taliban regime is again, it seems that it's going to win the war, it's going to win the battle. And then it's going to rule the country. So it's very interesting to see that Taliban is also making certain adjustment. And in terms of China, this adjustment is, uh, is certainly will be welcomed by Beijing because China is also have this policy always saying the Afghanistan's fate or Afghanistan affairs should be decided by uh, Afghanistan people. So I don't care like who is actually uh, in, in power in Kabul, but as long as uh, you, are, you are not hurting, you are not endangering uh, Chinese interests, you uh, should be fine and uh, Beijing will be happy to take you. Also, as a normal government, you know, if you want investment or if you want trade, maybe we can look at this. If there are no security geopolitical uh, uh, dangers, I think China will be, you know, tentatively, will gradually to, to see how it can work together with, uh, uh, with, uh, with a new regime. And also, Chad, remember that when, even when Taliban was seen by most of the people that are untouchable, you know, it's, a, it's a group of uh, uh, maniacs, they're fighters, they're, they're, they're militant. Uh, I mean, China has been trying very hard, quietly, of course, trying to uh, play kind of a, a middleman role between the Taliban uh, militia and uh, the, the, the government in, in Kabul. Of course, on the, on the surface, China was... Uh, has a full support of the government in Kabul. They have been constant, like, di- diplomatic relations. You know, it is one of the built in the road uh, country. And China, even, I think, for a brief time, they have even a Confucius Institute at Kabul University, taking it as a, as a normal country. And China also makes dozens of investment projects there, including one of the biggest, you know, the copper mine in the outskirts of Kabul and in some uh, oil field in the north. But still, for China, you know, this is a kind of a war-torn country. And uh, China sees clearly the current Kabul government do not have the capabilities or do not have the institutions to rule the country uh, uh, effectively. So its future is uncertain. And now we are going to see this uh, moment of change. Now uh, Taliban is going to be back in power again. And I think for China, there's also lots of of things to, to think about. The number one, of course, the Afghanistan should never become a source of tension or a source of danger for the uh, Chinese territory. You know, definitely should not be a base for kind of militias or uh, insurgent against uh, against China. This is the number one rule, and number two, of course, China will, ha- will look at its uh, uh, interests, economic and a commercial interests in the country.
2: We, we talked a little bit offline about sort of how Afghanistan has been uh, the graveyard for empires. Russia wasn't able to succeed in Afghanistan. The U.S. has has now pulled out. But for China, how important is it to have a stable neighbor in Afghanistan? And, and what does that mean for sort of its influence within the region? You know, will we see more investment? Will we see more Belt and Road projects? Um, and what will this mean for sort of, you know, Western China and general security?
1: Well, uh, Chad, I think for China, uh, strategically speaking, Pakistan should be the uh, should be the strategic focus. But Afghanistan, of course, will be increasingly important. Because as you just mentioned, you know, Afghanistan is being a graveyard for the, uh, for the empires. When the U.S. Uh, led NATO troops pulled out to have uh, Vancouver there. And whether China can f- fulfill this power Van Q is uh, is, uh, is un- un- uncertainty. But China, I think, will try something different, you know, different from these ginger uh, scans uh, and uh, from the so- former Soviet Union. You know, the sword and the guns and rifles and, uh, and the drones, uh, uh, bombs, never really worked very well for these great powers in Afghanistan. So China can try maybe something different if uh, uh, by force it is not uh, possible. Maybe by med- med- meditation, you know, people to... Uh, to sit down at the same table to talk about business, to talk about trade, to talk about how to improve uh, infrastructure, and maybe this can be, the, uh, be China's uh, solution. I mean, this is also uh, China's test, because China is always trying to say to the world that we have no interest in meddling into other people's affairs. Now it, has, it seems like Beijing has no choice. Like, you are the the biggest boy in the, uh, uh, around here. So you have to step into the room and to sort things out. And so uh, Beijing will look at its own capabilities and strengths. What's you know, the biggest uh, or the, the, the most effective tool uh, China has? China certainly cannot send another PLA army into Afghanistan to maintain orders. But China has the money has the capabilities of uh, infrastructure building and also has a uh, uh, huge demand for c- certain resources that Afghanistan is sitting on, for instance, uh, the copper mines, the minerals. And then there also, uh, Afghanistan has huge demand for uh, manufactured goods from China. So I think these areas uh, we should look at.
2: Uh, Joshin, let, let me circle back with that. You know, you talk about the importance of sort of the copper mines and, and these things, but could we talk a little bit folks a little bit on um the strategic importance of uh Afghanistan where it sits what what it means for projects such as the Belt and Road and you know certainly as an american um, much of the focus has been about insurgency or the poppies or or you know drone strikes these different things and and we really haven't focused on what this means you know particularly for strategic importance for a country like china
1: well uh you you make a a very good point chat because for china afghanistan is very uh, important in this uh, uh, geography i mean look at uh, the, you know, the, one of the key projects in the Belt and Road, uh, the China-Pakistan uh, economic par- c- corridor. You know, without a stable uh, Afghanistan, you know, this basically will remain a pipe dream. Exactly like a gas pipeline I have mentioned earlier in the podcast. You know, they always uh, think about this uh, this great idea of TAPI from Turkmenistan goes to Afghanistan and Pakistan to India. You know, India needs natural gas. Turkmenistan has the world's largest reserve of gas. But it can never be realized because of what? because of there's war, there there are no infrastructure, there are no security, no stability uh, along the way. So for China, it would be the same problem. So China will have to have to you know ensure that there is uh, some kind of at least some very basic level of uh, uh, stability and uh, and the regional uh, certainty there, so that it can. Uh, map out its uh, ambitious uh, projects of Belt and Road. Without that, it will be, uh, it will be all, all about the problems and the troubles. You know, there would be no benefits for China.
2: Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting. I, I wonder with the Belt and Road if, if we will ultimately see sort of uh, what we've seen in Pakistan, where we've seen China make critical infrastructure um, investments that's led to Chinese companies like Hair and, and others um, – investing, building computers, building washing machines, building all these things that not only go back to China domestically, but also go to other parts of the world. Yes. So
1: the very idea of a Belt and Road is actually being pushed by the, a U.S. initiative started by uh, Hillary Clinton tw- almost like 20 years ago. And in uh, in Kabul, I think Clinton mentioned something, New Silk Road. Okay. the so the United States is going to step into the region and, you know, also trying to uh, have this infrastructure to build up. And then there was a, a common uh, prosperity kind of community in Central Asia uh, led by, by the U.S., but it never, never worked. And China have this, uh, um, belt road. And as you can see, almost China's belt road, of course, broadly speaking, it goes to uh, Afghanistan. But so far, China has been it, because it's not possible for China actually to put these, uh, these monies into it. So it has to go through its, uh, neighboring areas. Pakistan is a good starting point because in southern part of Pakistan, Islamabad or uh, Karachi, their support, their, their labor, their stable environment. So it's good for manufacturing. And if you look at the energy or the pipelines, you can see China, China's pipelines, uh, none of these uh, key Chinese oil or gas pipeline goes to Afghanistan. They all go uh, in in, in the north. So maybe in the future, you know, when Afghanistan is a little bit uh, stabler, and China will have uh, better confidence in this country, some of these projects actually can go to uh, Afghanistan. And also one thing, uh, one small historical uh, uh, incident I would like to mention is that although Afghanistan is a neighboring country for China, it feels like very remote. For now, they share a small part of the border, but this border has been closed for the last 200 years, has never been opened. And there was no, there were no direct flights between the two countries. Okay. There was one. There was once upon time there was a brief fight uh, between Urumuchi and Kabul. But that uh, Ariana has no security uh, kind of protocol, so no one is recognizing the security. You have to actually uh, go to a small office in Urumuchi saying, and uh, pay cash to buy uh, a ticket to fly into Kabul. But I, I don't think that uh, that route uh, uh, has uh, ha- is still in uh, uh, operation. Anyway, uh, uh, China's longest or the, 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 the deepest connection with Afghanistan is actually to Xuanzang, the monk in, uh, in the Tang dynasty. Uh, you know, this is also the base for the journey to the west when uh, Xuanzang was trying to uh, travel from Xi'an all the way to northern India to take back the Buddhism back to China. And then uh, there, of course, if you, uh, this is a, this is a, like a household story in China, right? And, and then uh, the monkey king, the pig, and, uh, and also the, the, the monster doing carrying, carrying the, uh, luggage. And if you walk into the uh, Chinese embassy in Kabul, the first thing you will see is this uh, uh, stone statues of these four uh, mystical figures, the, the monk Xuanzang, the monk king. And you can see you know, China in culture or even in, uh, deeply psychologically to see as kind of uh, exotic place that is far, far away from us. But we can actually do some travel, do some trade. So this is this will be uh, the foundation, I think, the cultural background for China's policies uh, in 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 the future.
2: Yeah, it, it it is interesting, and 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 I I want to sort of end on one thing. Do you think China will ultimately be seen as a friend and be welcomed? Because you know the Taliban have called them a welcome friend, but you also have Afghanistan is not just one; it's many parts, and it's because of the remote nature and everything else, it, it is just not one where it's very easy for, to develop friendships and make things work.
1: Yes, I think that's, that's also the uh, cleverness of Chinese diplomacy in Afghanistan. Because China knows there are so many like, conflicting tribes and so many different interested groups. So China is saying, okay, this is uh, Afghanistan affairs should be d- decided by Afghanistan people, whether you are pushy or whether you are Tajikistan. You, know, you sit at the same table to talk about your own destiny. So I'm not going to take sides. So China is not going to jump into saying I'm a friend with uh, Taliban, so I'm against the existing uh, Kabul government. Or China will s- have a huge commitment to the current Kabul government and say no matter what happens, we'll just you know, support you against the Taliban. So uh, in, in the future, China will still uh, maintain this kind of uh, detachedness. Uh, it's, it, it will bring China no uh, real good if it uh, gets involved too much into this domestic politics of Afghanistan. Anyway, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, in the last hundred years, they have been fighting against each other. There seems no solution. So it's also unrealistic to expect like, OK, now the, the Americans are going away, the Chinese are coming so they can have some, um, you know, a silver bullet solution and solve all the problems.
2: Uh, Joshin, uh, once again, thanks for joining us and uh, giving us the great insight into uh, Afghanistan.
1: Thank you, Chad.
0: Hi, this is Timation from the Tech Desk at the South China Morning Post. This week, I'm hosting the Inside China podcast, and we're talking all things DD. It's China's biggest ride-hailing app, and it was the year's biggest Wall Street IPO. That was until the Cyberspace Administration of China stepped in. Now there's three more U.S.-listed companies from China under investigation. And the broader crackdown is also affecting Tesla and Microsoft. Come and hear more about what's happened, why it happened, and what comes next on the Inside China podcast.
2: Uh, Georgina Lee is my colleague here on the business desk in Hong Kong. We've both been reporting this week on how Beijing's new rules for Chinese companies listing on U.S. markets are having an effect on upcoming IPOs. Welcome to the podcast studio, Georgina.
0: Hi, Chad. How's it going?
2: Now, there's a lot going on, on the U.S. side in the wake of uh, China's uh, Cyberspace Administration intervening on Didi. There's investors launching lawsuits. There's uh, congressmen who are issuing sternly worded statements We've also seen a fair bit of just investor anger uh, over this, or at least affecting the stocks. But let's unpack the bigger story behind this. Um, There are new rules for Chinese companies hoping to raise capital in overseas markets. And by that, we can assume where the big money is, on Wall Street, as opposed to, say, Hong Kong. Uh, Can you unpack for us what these new rules uh, are, what they mean? I know it's very early.
0: So there has been a a range of pretty sweeping uh, new rules that's coming out of Beijing, and basically... I would say that not too many people have the specifics about what Beijing really want to implement. But one thing for sure, I think uh, right now, I think Beijing is pretty much looking at tightening uh, uh, scrutiny of, uh, you know, uh, Chinese companies looking to conduct an offshore listing and, you know, uh, an offshore IPOs. Uh, So what's going to happen, I think everybody is just waiting and seeing. But what's for sure is potentially that there's going to be more scrutiny uh, from new agency that might be proposed in order to oversee this kind of applications versus the status quo that we don't have specific, you know, application requirements from the securities watchdog the um, you know CSRC uh, who is not Currently required to actually give permission to these companies seeking offshore listing, so potentially we're looking at extra layer of scrutiny governing these applications. Uh, looking at uh, you know launching an IPO in the U.S. potentially also for Hong Kong markets.
2: Yeah, it, it's interesting because the the U.S. market, particularly for you know tech companies, has been such a, a a big driver, and you know you haven't had to have that permission. You know, say if you want to list in Hong Kong and you were a traditional H share. Um, um, where you're incorporated in the mainland, you did go to the CSRC and you said, hi, um, you know, I would like to do this, and you went through the whole process. But in this case now, they, they want to bring everybody under, under that umbrella in some fashion, it seems like. Do we have a sense of, you know, what this might mean for upcoming IPOs? I know we've had a few companies this week come out and either say it or at least people have affiliated with them say they were delaying their IPOs.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right about the fact that currently, I think a lot of stay-owned companies uh, that are incorporated in China, uh, we call that H-share companies, when they come to Hong Kong for a listing, say, for example, the banks and even, you know, the uh, now withdrawn listing by Ant Group, uh, they, when they came to Hong Kong, they were essentially China incorporated companies, they were H-share, and uh, under the existing rules, these guys have to get uh, CSRC approval. Now, what we're looking at is, you know, potentially people really haven't got a confirmed version of what Beijing really wants to implement. But uh, one possibility that people are talking about is that, you know, these companies, even they're not age share, even they're like private enterprises founded by private entrepreneurs with uh, uh, minimum government ownership in these companies, they might potentially also have to get some sort of approval from regulators. And that's been, you know, what's in everybody's mind. And that's been you know, the uh, uh, primary concern across the uh, minds of the issuers or perhaps even the intermediaries that are helping these issuers to go to the market. So that's why it has caused some sort of concerns and reflected in the share price of these companies listed in the U.S.
2: Let me circle back, Georgina, because it's interesting uh, and we often see this in China, but there were broad guidelines issued and and they talked about a variety of things, whether it be the bond market, the, the equity markets. But you know, in particular, I think a lot of us have focused in on overseas listings, but these aren't rules per se. They're, they're guidelines. And and so, you know, how soon could we see sort of something promulgated where we really have a sense of what's going on? And what are people telling you right now about sort of, you know, where they expect this to head?
0: Yeah, you're right about the fact that what has been issued over the past week is just very Broad. I wouldn't say there they were even guidelines because the Chinese word for it is it's called Yi Jian and it's kind of like a viewpoint that the regulator has issued. So, you know, it's not at this stage as solid and concrete as a set of guidelines or as a set of measures that has to be implemented by the different divisions. But what's been mentioned in this whole set of rules targeting illegal activities in the securities market is that among two of the 30 or 40 uh, viewpoints that has been published last week, two of them specifically mention offshore listing planned by Chinese companies going forward has to be going through some sort of tighter scrutiny by Chinese regulators. So that has been mentioned among two, among maybe 40 or 30 of all these different viewpoints. So that has what essentially caused a lot of nervousness or perhaps unnerved quite a few of the issuers or investors out there in the market.
2: Yeah, and I was talking with a a Didi shareholder just uh, today who um, he's someone who's very pro-China in terms of investing and the opportunities. His ETF is really focused around telecoms and, and internet companies. But, uh, you know, he, he's just talking about how Americans uh, in the investing community are just so unnerved by something like this, you know, the, the classic idea that markets don't like uncertainty. And on top of that, you, you've, you've got the just general sort of distrust that's been growing between China and the U.S. recently, whether it's about accounting rules or, uh, you know, and potentially delisting for some Chinese stocks. And so Georgina, I, I want to ask what, what you're hearing from investors and and, and deal makers and, and, and people in the industry right now. You know, wh- what are they saying? What are they thinking about this?
0: I think across the, the banking sector, the intermediaries who are helping the uh, Chinese issuers arrange, you know, their listing plans offshore, they are in fact Seeing a lot of nervousness among the investors, perhaps they would be saying that well, right now might not be the best time for you to chase up these stocks in the U.S. You know, you can wait out and see uh, after this whole shockwave uh, from these uh, latest announcement has passed. Perhaps you know, take a breather, and then share price would go back to normal. I guess we've seen that historically with a lot of different announcements from Chinese regulators. A lot of time they come uh, without a lot of uh, details until a later stage. Um, You know, the other example that I can quickly raise would potentially be what happened with Luckin Coffee. They were definitely hit by uh, an accounting scandal and then they, uh, you know, were found out to have inflated their uh, financial figures even before their IPO and it was part of the data that was used for their IPOs. Uh, at that moment, there was a broad sense of nervousness and pushback by U.S. Uh, investors and say, look, you know, should we still trust these Chinese companies? I remember the U.S. You know, legislator or the um, you know, people in this, um, you know, legislature were, you know, even proposing a lot of uh, measures to target Chinese listings in the U.S. But after a while, then you see, uh, you know, this natural uh, investors interest come back after maybe several months. I think, uh, you know, the reason is um, quite straightforward because if investors could see that they could get potential alpha and it's a source of alpha for their portfolio, it uh, as long as it's produced return, then they would be happy uh, to come back to the market. Um, so the other point that I've been hearing from the banks is that, you know, it could be a uh, potential... Benefit and positive for the Hong Kong, uh, you know, listing community. I mean, for the Hong Kong bankers and perhaps the intermediaries who have been helping, you know, these Chinese issuers to list in Hong Kong. So, um, you know, while you have that uh, one side, U.S. investors may be a bit (laughs) nervous. On the other hand, you have the uh, Hong Kong bankers and you have the Hong Kong, you know, uh, brokerages who are actually uh, quite earnestly waiting, you know, for this uh, sort of implementation so that they have, clearer rules about what can be allowed, what cannot be allowed, and potentially some of them, you know, who knows, might ultimately uh, switch over to have a listing in Hong Kong.
2: Yeah. And and I know one story that you've been following very closely this week has been the, the dual primary listing of x So, you know, we had rule changes uh, in Hong Kong last year that allowed, um, you know, companies that were listed in the U.S. To, to have a secondary listing in Hong Kong. But in this case, um, Xping had a dual primary listing, and they just listed last August in the U.S. So, could you tell us a little bit about you know the dual primary listing that that Xping's taken? undertaken and sort of what this may mean for the future of, of more homecoming of stocks to Hong Kong?
0: I think dual primary listing, essentially what it means is that this uh, company, you know, these kind of companies that have been listed in the U.S., when they seek a due primary listing, then the jurisdiction as well as, um, you know, Hong Kong here as a dual, dual primary listing location can be considered on par with the U.S. In other words, then, you know, the compliance or perhaps the scrutiny that they have been uh, following in the U.S. market would potentially, you know, be on a par with what they would be um, imposed on uh, by the regulators or by the exchange here. So in other words, it's kind of like put Hong Kong as another quote-unquote home market for uh, these issuers. You're right. XPeng is perhaps the third... U.S. listed companies to have returned to Hong Kong as a company listed here on dual primary listing. Uh, you know, some positives or advantages for a dual primary listing would be the fact that they could um, get included in the Stock Connect. Stock Connect, as you know, is a bridge between Hong Kong and the mainland Chinese stock market that enable for mainland investors to invest in Hong Kong stocks and vice versa. So a lot of these companies, when they seek a dual primary listing in Hong Kong, they are really looking at being potentially eligible and be included in the Stock Connect Bridge mechanism so that they could, uh, you know, their stocks could be bought by a bunch of Chinese investors.
2: So whether it's a dual primary listing uh, like XFing or, or it's a secondary listing like uh, Alibaba, our corporate parent, undertook a few years ago, uh, you know, is there indication or what are you hearing about other companies potentially coming back to Hong Kong?
0: In terms of secondary listing, I think the interest has always been there. I think we have been on perhaps... At least two and a half years run on the secondary listing because it was, an, uh, you know, it was part of a, a package of reforms that the Hong Kong exchanges and clearing has implemented in Hong Kong since April 2018. You know, we already have some sort of experience by several pretty big U.S. listed companies, uh, Chinese tech companies such as the Baidu, the JD.com. And then a lot of different others that have tried this. So they have seen, well, you know, all these companies that have returned, why don't I do the same thing? So uh, the only criteria that they would have to follow time-wise is that they have to have two years, two full years of track record of having been listed in the U.S. And then you you, you can qualify for a secondary listing. So what we're seeing is a lot of others you know that are potentially now eligible because time has lapsed from 2018 and now we're starting to have like maybe perhaps a company that has been listed in the US for two years old you know a two year old company listed in the US uh, for just two years now they become eligible so there's still a bunch of companies you know that are looking to uh, list in Hong Kong on a secondary listing basis Uh, on your question about dual primary listing I think you know that is possible too that might potentially bring in other companies that would follow the footstep of XPeng and then, uh, you know, seek a primary listing. Uh, what has been reported by uh, some of the media outlets is that, you know, after XPeng, other electric vehicle makers of China, such as the Neo, such as the Li Auto, you know, they may also, you know, choose a dual primary listing as a way to come back and list in Hong Kong. So yeah, I think the trend has been pretty positive. You know, these sort of new avenues opened up by the Hong Kong exchange to welcome Chinese companies uh, listing and fundraising on this market is definitely positive and conducive to more to follow.
2: Oh, well, Thanks, Georgina. I know you'll be following this closely. We'll all be following this closely. So we'd love to have you back in the studio soon to talk about this.
0: Yes, for sure.
2: That's all for China geopolitics this week. All eyes will be peeled on Chinese tech giants as they navigate their way through Beijing's further crackdowns and the decoupling that's underway. For more coverage on this, as well as China's relations with Afghanistan, go to scmp.com. And for more updates, you can follow Zhou Shen on Twitter. He's at X-I-N-Z-H-O-U. And you can follow me at Chad Bray. That's C-H-A-D-B-R-A-Y. Or you can just follow the whole team at SEMP Economy. We'll be back next week to bring you more reports and analysis. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?